White Winter, Chapter 2 It was during that really bad winter of 2010 when the snow fell and lay for weeks and weeks. Well, you all know what Figley's like when anything changes. We just don't have the infrastructure to cope with extreme weather. Every drought causes a hose ban. Every storm causes flooding. Ice closes down roads until they can be salted. Snow usually isn't much of a problem, since we rarely get any, and even when we do, it only lasts for a few days at worst. But that winter, of course, was different. I don't know how closely you watched the news in those days, but we were all warned, way ahead of time, to buckle in for an unprecedented winter. It was all the rage in the small talk community. I'm sure that many taxi men and cashiers were told ad nauseum about how the upcoming December was going to be a brutal one. But I think even those spouting off daily warnings and stoking up fears didn't realise quite how severe it would become and for how long it would last. The snow fell from morning to night, never giving up, never relenting, and when it finally blanketed everything, as seemed its sole intent from the off, it lay there for months. After that, it was like life had hit the pause button on the entire city of Figley. I remember my dad was doing the supermarket deliveries back then, and he could barely cope. He lost control of the truck a couple of times, but got lucky enough to avoid ever having a bad crash, and despite the fact that those services were more required than ever, since people rarely left their houses, he was limited on where he could go. Some of the hillier estates were marked out as no-go zones, so he ended up doing less than a quarter of the hours that he usually did, since he wasn't on a fixed contract, which of course, left my parents in trouble with a lot of their bills. Loads of people were in the same boat. Taxis were like gold dust, and stores were staying closed because the staff couldn't make it in. I remember walking through the town centre on a Saturday afternoon, and forgive me for my choice of words, but it was like a ghost town. It was like waltzing through Chernobyl or something. The worst thing about it was that I was 19 and halfway through my first year in uni, so I was living in cold, shitty student digs with Aidan and Eamon up in Dudley's Terrace. I probably could have lived at home that year, since we were just on the outskirts of town, and I could have taken the bus in and out, but I was happy to sacrifice my comfortable standard of living for independence. I was enamoured with the idea of a proper student lifestyle, which I envisioned as being a 24-7 session of drinking and partying before sunrise and beyond sunset. But Christ, I still don't know how we survived in that place during that fucking winter. I'll tell you, it took a hell of a lot of hot water bottles, electric blankets, and mugs of tea. Also, as you all know, I'm not a very religious man but I said more than my fair share of prayers to get through those hard days. The electricity bills were astronomical, enough to turn your hair white alone, and don't even get me started on the price of oil heating. Anyway, there came an incident on one of the very worst nights, the 12th of December, a day when I realised there's a stark difference between snowfall and snowstorm. I was in uni when it really started bucketing down in big, white, fluffy clumps the size of golf balls. The entire city had hit the pause button, yes, but my uni still insisted that we meet our deadlines, the pricks. So in my usual fashion, I left my coursework to the very last minute. That's how I found myself in the enviable position 
of having to camp out in the uni library as late as possible to try and get everything done in time for tomorrow's submission. That was the plan, anyway, until someone approached my little cubicle, hitched his thumb and said, You need to be clearing out. He was an old man, with a salt and pepper beard and curly grey hair. He had one of those faces that you always see around campus, but can never quite attach a name to. I checked my phone and insisted to him that I still had almost two hours until closing. He glanced out the window at the white clumps. Well, I have members of staff who have to drive and arrange lifts, and it's getting far too dangerous out there, so we'll be closing up early due to safety concerns. I gazed around and saw that multiple members of staff were staring at me, trying and failing to hide their resentment because I was the only pitiful bastard left in the place. I had a laptop at home, yes, but what I didn't have was the software required to complete the assignment. Besides, my fingers would be far too sore to type in that cold. But eventually, I decided that with what I'd cobbled together tonight, it might just be enough to scrape a pass. No, you're right. I'm sorry, I said. I'll go get packed up now. Cheers, he said, and was about to wander away until he halted. Do you need a lift anywhere? I was surprised to be asked that, but maybe he was just struck by that spirit of giving that I hear infects most normal people during the holidays. I'd know nothing about that, to be honest. I simply shook my head. No, it's alright. I'm in Dudley's Terrace, so I'm only like 10 minutes away. The man, who I would learn after that night was named Raymond Porter, smiled. Dudley's Terrace. Now that takes me back. I was about to ask him about that, purely out of politeness, until he straightened and said, Yeah, you'd be faster walking than getting in my car in that case, but if you'd prefer to stay warm for longer, just let me know. Thanks. I got my stuff gathered up and exited the library after apologising to the staff. They were all waiting at the door for me to skedaddle. When I was on my way, out of campus, walking down the road, the snowfall became so fierce that I could barely see a few feet to either side of me. You all know how it was that year, how everything was hidden under so many layers that they lost their shapes. Vehicles were white lumps, and buildings were even bigger white lumps. I had no markers, and no real sense of things. It was sort of like being lost at sea, I imagine. My nose ran like a leaky garden hose. I had my hands stuffed into my pockets, and even though I had a fur-lined woolly hat on, I was half convinced that my ears were going to fall off. My arms hurt, my legs hurt, my toes hurt, hell, even breathing hurt. I've never felt cold like that since, where the breath is so sharp and painful that you have to ration it out, like it's bottled water. As I traipsed along the middle of the road, I saw not a single moving car nor person, and I swear, I began to see lumps I'd never seen before, buildings that were out of place, as if I'd been airdropped into the middle of a foreign country. It was all so different. Odd. I don't know if you've ever heard of jamais vu, but it's basically the reverse concept of déjà vu. Instead of something that's unfamiliar, briefly seeming familiar, it's where something normally familiar temporarily becomes alien. You've probably experienced it with rooms or people's faces before. I felt like I had it then, only dialed up to a million, so that my entire surroundings, even the sky, felt like they were part of a world I'd never been to. I think the worst part about it was the quiet. I mean to say that the wind was loud, of course. Burst your eardrums loud. 
and yet there was no layers underneath that sound. It was like going to see a live band, but you realised, after a minute, that only the vocalist is hooked up and there's no sound coming from the instruments. The world beneath that fierce wind was so quiet, and I was genuinely completely lost at that point, as ridiculous as I know that sounds, coming from someone who's lived in Figley their whole life. I could not tell one direction from another. I could not even figure out what street I was on, as there were no visible signs. I was checking my phone and considered ringing Emin, but I don't even know what I was going to ask him. To send the search party? To shoot a flare up into the sky so I'd have a better sense of where to go? I was trying to flick through my phone, but the constant snow kept smudging it and messing up the touchscreen. That was when I heard crunching footsteps. When I glanced over my shoulder, I couldn't see anything at first, until my eyes adjusted and then, through the snowfall, I spied a blur, standing about a block behind me, occupying the middle of the road. I thought at first that it was a stranger, just another straggler, like me, and considered waving them down and waiting to ask for help. But as I stood there and watched them draw closer, I sensed something deeply disquieting about them. Those intangible things became more tangible the longer I watched them. Although it was making forward momentum, it was barely moving its legs. My tongue was stuck to the ceiling of my mouth. I saw it pass one of the lumps that I knew to be a truck, and I swear, as ridiculous as I know this also sounds, when it passed it, it stood over the height of it. Now I can see what your faces are doing, and I can't blame you, but I'm not delusional. I'd ask you to fetch me a Bible to swear on, but we've already established my relationship with religion, so you're just going to have to take my word on it, or accept that I'm a nutcase. Anyway, I discerned, as it drew closer that the giant was not only a giant, but also inhuman in shape. It was both spindly and muscular at once, sort of similar to the build of a kangaroo, but that's where the similarities to that particular animal ended, because I also spotted something over its head that looked like a big rack of antlers. Maybe it was more like an elk that was capable of standing on its hind legs. Even as it watched me with curious eyes, I knew that it was more animal than man in its contemplation. It was instinctive. It was trying to discern whether it viewed me as predator or prey. It resumed its glide across the blanket of snow, as if it had now arrived upon that decision. I turned and sped onward, but I had to trudge through that awful snow with my legs nearly sinking in all the way up to my knees, and it was only becoming deeper and deeper. There were bursts of cloudy powder to either side of me. Even with the thing gliding and me exerting maximum effort, it was making up ground on me, catching about 10 yards for every 100 that I journeyed. I was exhausted after just a few minutes. It felt like someone had strapped a pair of kettlebells to my legs and chained a weight plate around my neck. My heart was hammering. I tasted something rising up in my throat from the effort. Copper. Eventually, I became so focused on glancing over my shoulder that I fell. Yes, exactly like the ditzy bitch that you yell at in a horror movie. I collapsed over my own stupidity. I was almost swallowed up by the snow. I spat out the cold mouthfuls and pushed myself up. Then I heard it, the laboured breaths, augmented by a rattling sound. I didn't look to see how close it was, but I imagined that if I could hear it through that wind, then it must have been almost on me. 
I pushed myself up and after spotting a fence, I heaved myself over it and dropped down onto the other side. I got up and waded through the back garden, climbed over another fence, then made my way down a narrow back lane. When I exited that, I recognised the street I'd arrived into was Eden Park. I knew that Dudley's Terrace was just a few down from that. The whole time, I never checked over my shoulder. I was crying, I admit, because I thought it was still going to catch me, convinced that at any second, I was going to feel those big, spindly arms wrap around my waist and drag me back. I could feel the teardrops on my face, tightening, crystallising. When I got home, I locked both doors. Aidan was staying with his parents, but Eamon was there. He laughed. Look at the state of you. Jesus, Orn. I was caught far too deeply in my own shock to explain things to him properly. When I asked him about this years later, he told me that I just kept on muttering something about antlers. I made myself a bovril, which was difficult because my hands were shaking and I kept spilling water. I used what remained for the hot water bottle, then clung onto it for dear life. When I was up in my room, as painful as it was, I had to peel my clothes off before stuffing them into a hamper. My body was so pink and sore that I wrapped myself up in a blanket, which was like being hugged by an angel after all I'd been through. Then I closed the blinds, but peered through a small, crooked gap out into the street. I saw nothing out of place. I think I pulled an all-nighter that night, drinking my way through teas, bovrils, and because I didn't want to use up our limited supply by myself, I sometimes just had plain hot water with a squeeze of lemon. It's better than it sounds. I never got any coursework put in. I'd forgotten all about the deadline after falling asleep. When the sun had risen, I was finally able to convince myself that I was safe. It was okay, because apparently loads of other people also missed the submission deadline, citing their inability to access the required software from home. So we all got an extension to put it in the following week. Even that didn't feel like enough time to process things, to allow myself to return to reality. I remember that night as being probably the worst winter's night in Figley, at least in my lifetime. Three people had died. I know that's not massacre levels of numbers or anything, but for one night, in a small city, due to the weather alone, that's pretty rare. And you all know that the figures were a lot higher when accounting for that entire winter. That night, one woman, a mother of four, crashed into a lamppost after she'd slid down Outfield Way. Phoebe McConnell had been on her way to check on her elderly mother after receiving a distressing call where she described how she was unable to rise up from her sofa. Temporary paralysis is the medical term. Had it in her legs. Some theorised that the extreme cold brought it on, and by sheer coincidence, that exact same thing happened to Phoebe on the exact same night, which was why she couldn't use the brakes to save herself. Another was from an elderly man who braved it out into his back garden to leave something into his bin. He fell and hit his head on the side wall. Apparently the crack could be heard from the next estate over. I heard there were pieces of skull fragment and brain matter dotted between the stones, but I don't know if that's just a classic Figley rumour mill. Then there was the third person. It was debated on whether they had died of a direct result from the cold, or if it was just unfortunate timing. See. Their car had become stuck in the slush and the snow. The coroner's report would eventually come to reveal they'd gone into cardiac arrest at the wheel. 
It wasn't until the next day that I saw, on social media, that people from my uni were posting their heartfelt messages regarding a member of staff who'd passed away yesterday. And I suppose I can abandon my narrative suspense now, as you can probably guess who it might have been. You are correct. It was Raymond Porter, the man from the library, the man who'd offered me a lift home. I don't really pay much heed to the coroner's report, because I have a good idea of what really happened. You see, his vehicle was found on the exact same road that I'd hopped that fence. It's the only area that I could locate when trying to retrace my journey from that night, as if the rest of the street ceased to exist, and the thing that barely anyone could explain were the scrapes. At the side of Raymond's car, his brand new Volkswagen that he'd had for less than a month, that he'd referred to as his new baby, were 16 deep gouges. When I remember those antlers, and I think about those prongs that I barely glimpsed through the snow. Yeah, 16 sounds about right. Whatever he'd seen in it caused his heart to give out. Do I know what it was? I think it was something not of our world. Something that drags you into its world when it focuses on you. Perhaps it's like being caught in a spider's web. And some, like me, are fortunate enough to break free. It can probably only cross over into ours under certain circumstances when it gets cold enough, when the snow becomes fierce enough. I've toyed with many theories, but ultimately, I always land on the same one. I believe that it was a spirit, a representation, an embodiment of the harsh winter 